Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast which explores our deepest values, the stories that shape us, and how we can get better at navigating our multiple deep divides. Every episode, I interview someone who has some kind of public platform. I speak to them about how they use their voice, what they've learned about dealing with difference. Do you fancy checking out our back catalogue? You'll find journalists, artists, archbishops, novelists, politicians, and many more from a wide range of points on the political, religious, and other kinds of spectrums. Hopefully you'll find someone quite quickly that challenges you, that is different from you. But I hope the experience of listening to them will really help build understanding and illuminate how they see the world. Thank you so much for those who are leaving us reviews and rating the podcast and sharing it with their friends. It feels a really strange thing often, putting these conversations out in the world, not knowing how they're landing or if anyone's really listening. So I just love it when you get in touch. Easiest way is probably Twitter on at sacred underscore podcast or me directly at ES Oldfield. But you can also email us at sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Let me know if it's sparked a thought or it's changed the way you think about something or somebody. It really does make my day when I get those little insights into what's going on in your lovely listeners' heads. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Mike McCarg, also known as Science Mike. Mike is a podcaster of very long standing. It's fair to say he was definitely an early adopter leading the charge. He's formerly co-host of The Liturgists and he's the host of Ask Science Mike and he's now host of The Cozy Robot Show. He's also an author of Finding God in the Waves and more recently You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Arse. We spoke about his upbringing as a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, the process of him losing his faith and then finding his way from atheism to contemplative Christianity via science and an ecstatic experience. We explored his sacred value of equity and how we as humans tend to process trauma after we leave a tribe. We also discussed his experience being diagnosed with autism in his 40s and why he thinks it's really important for him to publicly identify as disabled to help change some of the narratives and preconceptions around disability and ableism. I really enjoyed listening to him and I hope you do too. Mike, we're going to go in the deep end, as we always do, with this word sacred, which Mm. I like for its heft. I like that it feels like it hasn't been fully co-opted by um, products or, Mm -hmm. you know, the wellness industrial complex or or Mm. anything like that. Um, But it means different things for different people. I'm really trying to just get at deep values, deep principles. This one clue that we get to it is if someone offered you money to give this thing up, you might get that like disgust reaction, the ick factor Mm -hmm. come out. You can bracket out your family. Um, You've had a bit of time to think about it. What comes up for you as a possible idea of what might be a sacred value to you or something you hold sacred? The inherent equity of every person. Um, I've been on a journey for many years now where um, the practice of contemplation and my spiritual development 
leads me to places of uh, peace and contentment and fulfillment about my life. The more simple my life gets, the more I seem to enjoy it. Um, But that same contemplation leads me to an increasing place of unrest and ill ease over the lack of equity in our world. And I've become so conscious of the price other people around the world pay for my simple life. The um, energetic electrons moving across cables to bring me electricity, to do Zoom calls and have lights. Um, Some of that energy is coming from ancient stores that were deep in the bowels of the earth, placed there slowly over time, and we release them suddenly. It changes our climate, and that impacts, tragically, the poorest people in the world the most. I've become increasingly conscious of it and often frustrated with what I am able and not able to do in response to it. Thank you. One thing that various other people have occasionally said to me is their sacred value. And the joy of this question is I get a huge range of responses. Um, is questions. And I did wonder, Mm. I'd like to sort of try and guess what people's might be. Because Mm -hmm. on your website and on your company's website and through Ask Science Mike, it feels to me like the value of a good question has been something formative in in your life. Am I I in the right ballpark? Absolutely. Um, But questions for me come back to um, equity. Because questions are how we find new perspectives. Questions are how we grow and how we change. The people who are the least interesting to me are the ones who do not ask questions. And the people who are the most fascinating are the ones who have the wisdom to know they don't know things. And they're curious to know things. And so I delight in questions, asking and answering them. Um, what I like about questions that are sincere and honest is that it helps us to grow together. When I am not afraid of uh, looking unsophisticated or, or unintelligent or like I'm not in the know about something and I ask a sincere question, and someone else knows my question is coming from a place of sincerity and answers it, there's like this remarkable savings because, you know, we've all got a a little vault of seconds that we get. We don't know how many seconds are in our account. Sometimes we'll run out. And um, my favorite thing in the world is to study deeply an issue or a topic. And it might take me weeks or months come to some place of understanding. But then if someone asks me a question and I can catch them up on my weeks or months of work in minutes, that feels like a miracle occurred. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, uh, you know, before the pandemic, I, m- I made my living uh, doing stage events 
That's how I paid my bills. And I, I don't know of any other uh, kind of public speaker or, or performer I've ever seen who their entire speaking career was just answering questions. But I, uh, I delighted it. And I also delighted it because if I walk in with an agenda of things I want to say and I want to share, then we're centering my perspective and my needs. But when you walk in and everything is based on questions and dialogue and exchange, something unique happens in every room. And whatever it is, is particular to what that room of people needed. And so I think you've so brilliantly uh, dug in here on questions as a value. And I would say like if, you know, my value system was a flower, uh, then questions would be certainly one of the petals that surrounded that center notion of equity. Thank you. We'll come back to that. Um, I was thinking of you as a, as a sort of a- agony uncle, as I was kind of conceiving of, of your role in the world. But I want to, to wind the tape back to get a sense of your journey to really locate you in a narrative. So I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood and particularly any big formative ideas, religious, philosophical, political, that have really shaped you. Well, I, I grew up in the uh, southeastern United States. Um, and I was a, a, a fundamentalist Christian as a child. And there are a lot of values I've had to shed from that experience over time. And I, I would imagine that for most people, those are self-evident. Like it would be, but it'd be particularly interesting to go and talk about the values I've shed. What's interesting to me is how much the values I was taught as a fundamentalist Christian have actually stuck with me. Like the core things, not the theology stuff. Well, who cares? but the values underneath them. What do I mean? Every person is worthy of love and has dignity and worth. It is important to be honest and to conduct yourself with integrity. God loves everyone. God pays special attention to those who are somehow lost or left behind. You know, those are the things I heard in Sunday school and in church every week. And those are really good values. I'm glad I was taught those things. It was fundamentalist Christians who taught me the importance of, uh, well, if you're going to get married, you better really love and pay attention to your wife. If you're going to be a parent, You better work hard to be a stable and supportive presence in the life of your children. So I have reflected on and I'm so grateful for those lessons. And um, I've realized how much, you know, those basic character fundamentals, those basic ways of seeing and relating to human people have remained the foundation of who I am, even as obviously my my faith journey has uh, gone pretty far from those roots. I mean, I think many of those things I would call theology to challenge mm. you on it um, mm. gently. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Tell me, tell me how you lost that form of faith. Two things, really. 
Just two two simple things. The gap between what spiritual leaders in my life said and what they did was one. So, you know, if you're growing up in a, a conservative religion that um, really one of the, the tent poles is, is shame around sex and sexuality and sexual behaviors. And then it seems like every leader uh, in your faith journey is, you know, violating their own sexual ethic in some way. So they're like preaching this one thing then doing something else. Uh, which is very frustrating to me. Um, and then the, the kind of logical nonsense that comes with fundamentalist faith. Like when I looked at what the, I guess I'd call the superficial theology, not the deeper, truer theology when I've just discussed, but the superficial stuff, like what is the Bible? What happens when people die? You know, who is God? Um, those things didn't add up. And I didn't learn that because I'm clever uh, or because I studied the Bible a lot, though I did. Honestly, the thing that really brought it all down for me at first was having a gay friend. You know, here I am a conservative evangelical and my faith tradition tells me that my friend, the very identity, the very way they experience love is sinful. It is wrong. It would separate them from God. And um, I don't know. I just kept noticing that there were all these gay and lesbian couples who were just really faithful partners to each other. As I got to know them better, I couldn't understand why God would find this to be so wicked. It actually started to make me feel angry with God and sick to my stomach. So I started really, really studying, you know, not the Bible, but scholarship about the Bible. I'm trying to avoid overly churchy words. And um, I, I had to go through a period of no belief at all. I became an atheist because I felt the, the teachings of Christianity, and at that point I couldn't tease out different traditions within the faith, were all um, brutal and anti-human. There's a little so moment, to, oh, forgive me. Go ahead, There's a moment you. in your book that really stuck with me where it sounds like there was a period where you were teaching Sunday school and still a deacon and going to church and then spending all your spare time on atheist forums on the internet. That must have been psychologically quite discombobulating. Oh my gosh, so discombobulating. That's the perfect word. Uh, it was confusing and overwhelming. And only now, years after I wrote that book, do I realize how much a toll it was having on my mental health to compartmentalize things so severely and to try to manage everyone else's feelings for them. Uh, you know, because I was afraid to tell my family that I wasn't a Christian lest they be hurt and felt harmed. I was afraid to tell people at church I didn't believe, thinking they couldn't handle that fact. 
Um, and so I just tried to manage everybody's feelings basically by lying. I would pretend to be a Christian. And, and, and even though I, I no longer had faith, I still saw value in it because I saw so many lives positively impacted by faith community. And uh, yeah, so I was, I, I had my kind of secret agent atheist phase and uh, I taught Sunday school and I tried to teach humanistic concepts using scripture. Um, and it, it, it went more well than it had any right to. Um, but uh, it wasn't sustainable. Um, honesty is a, a, a deep value of mine. And uh, no matter what my motivation, that level of duplicity wasn't something I could sustain over time. So I've read, um, I know you had a period as an atheist and then an ecstatic encounter mm -hmm. and a journey through science to somewhere different. But I'm also aware that that book was written a few years ago and I always feel like asking people, how are you doing on the God thing now is a very, is a very sensitive thing. And, and so I just want to ask you for the rest of that story, being aware that it might not stop where the book stopped and it's probably like it is for all of us, still evolving and live and maybe different from day to day. Mm. Well, first of all, I'd love to uh, point out one word you said that is so perfect, the ecstatic experience. Um, that, I mean, that tells the whole story for me. Um, yeah, I, I, I went through a period where I, I didn't believe. I was starting to tell friends and family I didn't believe anymore. It was going better than I thought it would. And, um, and it's funny, you know, Finding God in the Waves was published in 2016, but, uh, that book still sells every month. I mean, there's people, I think a new, new set of people every day find themselves in need of that book. So I'm glad it's out there. And you're right. My journey has, has kept evolving since then, but I had this kind of ecstatic experience where I felt a uh, divine union. Uh, um, I felt God's presence. Um, and it absolutely convinced me I had brain cancer. I mean, I was just totally sure that I had brain cancer because what else could describe like seeing a bright light and experiencing the presence of God if you have a materialist understanding of the world? Um, and I, I got a CAT scan and an MRI and uh, was actually pretty let down when uh, there was no even benign tumor putting pressure on my visual cortex, you know? Uh, so, did it, sorry to interrupt, but did it, did it feel like you'd been through this traumatic experience of letting go of those beliefs and then there was an inconvenient breaking in? I can just imagine the like, Ah, what do I do with this data point? I was good. I liked being an atheist. Like humanism, like was very satisfied to this day. Uh, humanism and atheism for me is a very satisfying explanation for the world we observe. Uh, but I had this like, I mean, most beautiful singular moment of my life. I think in the book I described it as... Uh, 
you know, the world fell away, um, like a veil lifted from our bride's face on our wedding day. I mean, it was beautiful and, um, and inconvenient. <laughs> I mean, I was ready to go back home, tell everybody, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. Uh, I am going to devote myself to the betterment of the world uh, via the only savior humanity has, and that is humanity. And instead there was that light. And, but I liked it. And I also realized how much I missed it. I missed like having a tough day and being able to talk to God about it. So uh, I tried reading the Bible again. That did not go well. The Bible still seemed ridiculous and ancient and off. So I started studying like anthropology <laughs> and uh, sociology and neuroscience to try to understand like, can you do faith and have it be healthy for people? Because I, I, I at least... I don't want to do harm to myself or harm to others by chasing this light. So I found a bunch of neuroscience research that showed not only that faith can be beneficial, but kind of described like what makes it beneficial versus not. A lot of that has to do with how people conceive of God. And I looked at, um, you know, through sociology and anthropology, what faith community has, what benefits it has what practices lead to kind of the in-group, out-group tension and which ones don't, which was a very important thing to me. I didn't want to get into insular faith practice that kind of encouraged the xenophobia that can happen in conjunction with faith experiences. And once I figured out there was like a brain, body, social, healthy way to pursue faith, I decided I would just start pursuing these faith experiences without answering the philosophical existential questions about God. And before long, I found out, oh, I thought I invented that. Uh, nope, that is a very old practice in faith and including Christianity. Uh, and I realized there's this whole tradition of Christian mysticism. We experience God, can't explain God. So I leaned really into mysticism and an ultimate uh, contemplative traditions within Christianity. Now, I would say I identify as a Christian and most of my, my spiritual practices are Christian in origin, but I'm not, I have no degree of like um, exclusivity in my faith practice. I will just as happily sit and, and practice spirituality with someone who is Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or uh, you know, a pagan, I don't care. Like if, if, you're, if your faith leads you to a place of loving others, I'm so, so, so excited to uh, journey with you. But my, my investment in time and energy is in the Christian church. And those stories and those practices are easiest for me to access the divine. And uh, gosh, you know, my theology and my faith practice hasn't changed much since finding God in the waves. What happened though, was a more open approach to faith that was less judgmental towards myself, less judgmental towards other people, started creating space in my life. Space was risky because it let me begin to access my feelings 
and my emotional core that had been so tightly controlled by both modern masculinity and fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, there was a great softening. And once there was a great softening, so much of my repressed feelings and past traumas really started to surface. And so I had uh, several years where, you know, I was having a mental health crisis publicly because, you know, I'm a writer and a speaker. And, and my whole, as we've discussed earlier, my whole approach to public work is to just be honest. I'm not, I'm not terribly performative. And so as I was going through these things, I would just tell people I am going through these things. And, uh, and that's been, I don't know when we talk about sacred, like and spiritual to me, the work I do in therapy or the emotional work I do feels just as much a part of my spiritual experience. It feels just as sacred as when I spend time in contemplation or prayer or meditation, you know? I speak to a lot of guests about their values and the places that they belong. And it feels like we're always coming up against these... The, that, that need for belonging, that deep need to feel part of something and to feel seen... And I, mm. I see it a lot. And one of the reasons I, I think your book is so valuable is it, is it continually challenges the binaries of kind of in, out, the bad guys and the good guys. And I've been reading and thinking a bit about the kind of ex-evangelical movement in the States, mm -hmm. the, the sense of those who have grown up in a similar background to yours and then left it. A lot of them are finding a sense of belonging and community uh, it, uh, under that label of ex-evangelical and I think some of it is really kind of healthy and is helping people process. But a lot of it, for understandable reasons, feels um, that it's becoming exclusive in and of itself or, or mm. its tendencies can be. And in that, in that, it feels to me like we, when we leave a tribe, and it's usually, it's traumatic, right? That process of shedding a sense of belonging. Wanting to find somewhere else to belong is such a natural and healthy thing. You write a lot, speak a lot about empathy. I am so interested in these tribes. How do you think we as humans balance that that desire to be part of something, but not mm -hmm. allow it to have hard edges, really, to become mm -hmm. an exclusionary mm -hmm. process? It is quite an accident. But evangelicalism... create cycles of emotional abuse for its adherents. And for children who are raised in the evangelical church, some essential skills of emotional regulation and emotional awareness are not developed and are stunted instead. And so people deconstruct their faith experience and their political orientation and their sexual orientation as they leave the evangelical church. But there's no support system to help them learn to relate to their feelings or to regulate their feelings. And in the absence of some strict authority, 
They're just left to their own devices. And so what you see in ex-evangelical spaces, and I say this with considerable personal experience, is a collective traumatic outcasting. All these hard feelings, all these hurts, all these wounds, no longer constrained by a fundamentalist faith tradition, come out and people get really dysregulated and they get really dysregulated each other. And their trauma expression triggers someone else's trauma and it's this re-triggering and, and, and often deepening cycle of trauma. And uh, I mean, in many evangelical, Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, displays of extremely dysregulated emotion are celebrated as profoundly spiritual experiences. And so people like me would come along out of the evangelical church and say, hey, look, we don't have to believe these things. And we can love and support our LGBT neighbors. And uh, we can believe in science. And we can uh, be part of creating justice in the world. We can, we can be feminists. We can, you know, there's all this freedom. And as people uh, would come to my events and, and outcast trauma and have really dysregulated emotional displays, I would go, oh, good, we're all healing even though lots of people are in the corner in the fetal position. Uh, I mean that metaphorically, but occasionally, literally. I wanted to help people in those ex-evangelical spaces, but not just ex-evangelicals. A lot of people um, have been socialized against feeling all their feelings. Uh, find the healing that comes from accepting all of yourself, including your anger and your fear. And your sadness, you know, our attempts to avoid one, two, or all three of those feelings really leads to a lot of pain and suffering and medicating behaviors and uh, gets in our way of, of connecting with other people fully. I wanted to talk to you um, a bit about your being diagnosed with autism in, quite mm -hmm. late in life. And I know that that's mm -hmm. been part of your journey around kind of emotional literacy and understanding the deep psychology of how we relate to ourselves and each other. But it, I only really came across that, you were talking about that really quite recently as I've got into more recent episodes of the, of the Cozy Robot show. I'd love to hear how, how it came about. What, what, was, what led you to discovering that particular way of describing who you are? It, uh, a bowl of chips and some margaritas is exactly how it came up. Uh, Hillary and I and our mutual friend Michael were uh, having dinner. And we had a pitcher of margaritas. And uh, when you have a pitcher of margaritas, you begin to feel very relaxed and very exuberant. And there's this uh, move... I don't know how to describe it. There's kind of a shimmy. I think usually it's women who do it. They like hold their arms out and they kind of shake their chest. So Hillary did it and then Michael did it. It was very funny. And then I wanted to do it too, but I can't articulate my chest separately from my shoulders. I really can't articulate 
my shoulders separately from my waist. It's just kind of like one. It's like I made a steel from here to hill, very soft plush steel, but uh, <laughs> steel nonetheless, inflexible. And Hillary kind of knows that. And then later on in the evening, uh, they started rolling their shoulders. And I tried to roll my shoulders and I didn't, I couldn't do it. It literally, I was like, I see what you're doing. I'm like, right, what you're doing right now. I can't do that. So Hillary like put her hand on my shoulder blade and kind of like showed me. And even now I have to like sit and think and practice and I can do like one and I can't even talk and do it. And then I could do the other one. And so um, Hillary kind of noted that and Hillary's my friend. She's not my therapist, but, and she said, Mike, I don't know how to say this, but I've wanted to bring it up a few times. Have you ever just considered that you might be on the autism spectrum? And I said, no, of course not. And what was weird is I would do events and people would stand up and be like, how do you manage a speaking career with your autism? Or autistic people would stand up and ask me questions about how to cope with certain things from one autistic person to another. And I would be like, I'm, I'm sorry, there's been some misunderstanding. I don't have autism. Can I just inter, um, intersect for one minute to say, I didn't know there was like a physical, that that was what she gave, gave her a clue is extraordinary to me. I think that was one clue of many. And that yeah. was the one I think that finally convinced her to say like, if you wanted, you could look into this. She wasn't diagnosing me. She did not diagnose me. But she was saying, if you wanted, you could look into this. And my wife Jenny has been saying for more than a decade, I think you're on the spectrum. Uh, and I'd always told her, like, don't minimize autistic people by comparing what you see. And anyway, I was very wrong. So I went and got, like, tested. Uh, I did the whole thing, talked to a panel of experts. It's very expensive. And... Uh, yeah, the, the results were not ambiguous. Uh, it can be difficult to diagnose adults with autism. And they said it was not a difficult call for me. Um, and I was in my 40s. I mean, that was wild. Um, but I, I have to say, it really felt liberating. Because there's a collection of behaviors. I'm a pretty open person. I don't experience a lot of shame, but there were a handful of things that I kind of kept secret and was ashamed of. And it turns out literally all of them are symptoms of autism spectrum disorder, every single one. And so it was nice to know I wasn't just weird or off or strange. I'm autistic. I am neurodivergent. My brain is structured in subtly different ways from most people's brains. And uh, in my case, uh, my autism does present me with some gifts. I can read incredibly quickly with a very high degree of retention. Uh, you know, most books I can read in 90 minutes, two hours. Uh, remember almost everything I read, especially nonfiction and uh, I have really, really high recall. I kind of built a career out of it, but it also means like 
There's a lot of things other people do effortlessly that either require extraordinary effort, like rolling my shoulders, or I just can't do at all. And it's been very strange to be 43, I think. And for the first time in my life, like identify as disabled. It's a, it's an, an unexpected turn to say the least. I wanted to ask about that because you've been writing a bit recently about identifying as disabled and the journey around realizing how public narratives work in this area. So I'd love to hear particularly around autism in particular and maybe disability in general. Do you think we're making progress around these divides and what is there still to do? We are absolutely making progress and there's a lot to do. Our global cultures have become very obsessed with money and profitability. And people critique capitalism and rightly so, but at this point, it's not just restricted to capitalist economies at all. Um, And when we focus on profits and profit margins as kind of the primary metric of success for both people and societies, it makes it very hard to justify creating a world um, that is accessible to everyone. In really simple ways, ramps and elevators are expensive for people with limited mobility. Um, But it also has to do with like the, the structure and patterns of work. Um, one of the things I do uh, in my career is I appear on camera. I do on-camera appearances. I make series and shows. And uh, because of my autism and I had a traumatic brain injury from a motorcycle accident, I've got usually a good three and a half hours that I can be on camera before I start to lose vision in one of my eyes. And uh, then my speech will slur. And ultimately, if I keep trying to shoot, I'll start kind of drooling uncontrollably as my brain just has enough. And I know that, that, I mean, you and I are talking right now and I'm coherent and I'm clear, but the, the brain injury really means like I'm kind of bright in the morning and then fade throughout the day. And if I do something like a shoot that's intense, I fade much more quickly. And uh, in my case, that means like accommodation has to be made on a shoot schedule that actually makes it more expensive to make a program because you can't really hire like reasonably uh, gaffers and camera people on on half day blocks. They get hired to work a day. And it literally, if you're going to put me on a program, it's going to take twice as long to make it as if you got someone who was not disabled. And uh, that means I have to work with media partners who have a deep belief and investment in equity and accessibility for disabled people. And not every company does. And that is like the highest level of disability privilege I can imagine. Um, But that plays out in almost every occupation or line of work a person could have. Companies go, well, gosh, it's just more expensive to work with a disabled person. And so most cultures and countries have laws against that kind of discrimination, but they find ways 
And uh, in doing so, create this kind of perpetual marginalization for disabled people, both with visible and invisible disability for both physical and mental disability. And so the reason I talk about disability so much and so openly now is I want people to make the connection between how much I might have done in their life and how much my work might have helped them and the fact that I'm a disabled person and therefore how much we as the world societies are missing out that we aren't hearing from every person, including disabled people. Mike, we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to ask um, what you have learned about what helps us communicate across our tribes, our divides, our disagreements, our fears, our insecurities um, in our complex, multifaceted societies, whether that's through your adventures in science and faith, whether that's through your experience as a disabled person. For our listeners, is there a practice or a principle that they can apply um, to build that empathy and help us um, live together better? It is never what you say that builds a bridge across gaps of difference. It's how you listen. And this is hard. It's really hard because we're at a point right now where on every important issue of difference in probably every country in the world, people on both sides of the divide feel like the victim. And that's not objectively true, right? It's not objectively true. Um, Conservative whites in the United States are not actually the victims of black Americans who are formerly enslaved, right? That's just not true. But there's a, a feeling of assault on their culture and their way of life. And so um, I am a persuasive speaker and I'm charismatic and I'm charming and words come easily to me. And if I bring that approach into conversations with people on the other side of a political or ideological issue, I will get nowhere. But if I say, what's been hard in your life this year? If I start by listening, and then when I've truly listened, not with an agenda, but actually paid attention, actually heard someone's pain, heard someone's fear, and affirmed the validity of it, then often you can draw a line of connection to say, you know, these people have that experience too. They experience that fear as well. And we can start to draw on the threads of our genuinely shared humanity, as opposed to the fear and neuroses that lead us to believe other people are our enemies instead of our partners in making a world together. Mike, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. It was truly an honor. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.